Good afternoon. I'm Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings at the U.S. Naval Institute, uh, live this afternoon from the broadcast studio of the Jack C. Taylor Conference Center. It's great to be here today. Uh, before I bring in our guest, I want to mention a few things that are happening at the Institute, particularly next week. Uh, we've got the annual meeting coming up next Wednesday, the 11th of May. It's the first in-person annual meeting that the Naval Institute has had in three years because of COVID. Obviously, the last two years, we were virtual. Um, and it's the first ever that we've had at our brand new Jack C. Taylor Conference Center here on the Naval Academy Yard uh, at Beach, attached to Beach Hall at the uh, Naval Institute. So we're super excited to have a large crowd of people coming out next week for the annual meeting. And um, as our CEO, Pete Daly, likes to say, you can get your entire membership dues back at the open bar at the Naval Institute, which is true. Uh, great food, great drink, great uh, camaraderie and uh, time to uh, share with your shipmates and your fellow Marines. Uh, but in addition to that, you can also get a tour of the new conference center before the meeting starts. So if you're coming around 1500 or so, uh, you can get a tour of the conference center. The annual meeting kicks off at uh, 1600. And then um, after the annual meeting part, we're going to have the American Sea Power Project discussion featuring former Secretary of the Navy John Lehman, Dr. Tom Mankin from CSBA, and Professor Sally Payne from the Naval War College, moderated by our CEO, Errol Pete Daly. So it should be a great event. Uh, for more information on the annual meeting, go to usni.org forward slash events, click on the annual meeting. Uh, sign up and uh, and come in person. And if you can't come in person for our members and our audience that are uh, more remote from the D.C. and Annapolis area, uh, it will also be simulcast. It'll be live cast uh, via the web. So there's an opportunity to tune in live uh, and, and listen to that conversation as well. Really looking forward to it. Should be a great event. Okay, so now I want to bring in our guest. It's a pleasure to have on uh, today from Northern Virginia, Jerry Roncolato, Captain U.S. Navy, retired. He's the author of the American Sea Power Project article that's in the May issue of Proceedings. It's titled, The Character of War is Constantly Changing. It starts on pages 68 and 69 of the print magazine, and it's also on our website. Uh, Jerry, welcome to the show. Hi, Bill. Thanks. Glad to be here. All right. So um, we've talked a lot about uh, the American Sea Power Project uh, on the show. We've had a number of our authors, including... Sally Payne and, uh, and Secretary Lehman on the show. Uh, but we haven't had you or Paul Giara, your, your partner in crime. Um, you are the, 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 those who had the brainchild uh, for this project a couple of years ago, um, sold it to us, uh, convinced us that we should do this. I'm super happy that we have. But um, just before we get to your article, if you could talk a little bit uh, to our listeners about the, the how and why you and Paul came up with the idea for the project. Okay. Um, yeah, we, we were thinking this is in, uh, early 2020, uh, we were trying to figure out a way to reset, uh, uh, U.S. Naval thinking. And we figured a way to do it would be to, to have a debate of some, of some sort about the ends, ways, and means of, uh, sea power in general and American sea power in particular, and out of that, we, we talked with uh, Pete and Pete Daly, and uh, out of that came this idea of the American Sea Power Project uh, in three phases. Uh, ENDS was the first phase, uh, which was last year. Ways is the second phase this year, and means will be uh, at, at some future point. Um, 
the idea I think that's kind of unique to Naval Institute's tradition is to have have a series of articles on on topics defined by the Naval Institute and, and with authors uh, sought after and, and commissioned, if you will, by the Naval Institute to provide a foundational structure or framework for naval thinking. And our hope is that these these papers that are going to be in the proceedings have been and will continue to be in the proceedings on this broad topic will be able to inform uh, naval thinking, naval planners, uh, and to and stimulate uh, a broader base debate than just say program and, and force structure, which is what we typically talk about. So I think that's that's what we were trying to do is get back to the basics, uh, back to the fundamentals of naval naval power, sea power, and see where and how it, it's still relevant and where it can help in today's situation and conditions. Yeah, we kicked off about uh, 16 months ago in the January issue of uh, 2021. And then a couple of those the, the foundational pieces right at the start were uh, Professor Jim Holmes uh, from the Naval War College uh, writing about how great power demands great, you know, great responsibility demands great naval power. Uh, and then we had, uh, you know, Nick Lambert, his piece, which I wish I'd read when I was an ensign or a midshipman, what is a Navy for? And, and really talking about the economic um, demand signal for, right. for a, a particular, if you're a maritime nation, the need for, for a significant naval power to, uh, to protect and look after your economic interests, your commerce interests around the world. So those were two of my favorite pieces, but they've just been you know, great content. Um, and now it's you know, ongoing. And, and we heard, it was, this was nice to hear, was when Pete interviewed uh, CNO Gilday uh, at the Maritime Security Dialogue a, a little over a week ago. Uh, the CNO in, 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 is chatting with uh, Pete before, the, before their conversation on air, mentioned the, the American Sea Power Project and just said, hey, that, that Sea Power Project you got, I like it, keep it coming. So that was really nice to hear. So, yeah. um, all right, so let's turn for, to your article in particular. And, and you know, this is about the I don't know, 15th or 16th article we've had in the series. And um, you start, you mentioned two terms in the article that a lot of people use interchangeably, incorrectly interchangeably, um, the nature of war and the character of war. How do you define them and, and what's the difference between them? Uh, well, they, I think, were most eloquently defined by uh, Clausewitz back in the 1830s. And uh, the, the way I look at them and the way I define them, the, the nature of war, in, according to his theory, and which I subscribe to, is unchanging because it's based on human nature. It's based on the, uh, the clash of actively opposed wills uh, seeking to, uh, to dominate the other. Uh, that part Despite protestations that that technology can eliminate that part of war, eliminate the the chaos, uncertainty, fear, friction, uh, exhaustion that comes with war, it, it has not proven to be the case. So the fundamental nature of war is is enduring and is based on human nature. The character of war, which is the other term, uh, is is more more aligned with conditions in a given era. So you have geostrategic situations, the technology available, the economic structure of the global system, the social expectations, and, and 
who the who the the uh, the, uh, the adversaries are, who are the the protagonists in the competition. So, uh, if if a, if a military service uh, neglects one or the other, they're not going to be well suited or well prepared for what may be coming down the pike. Uh, so that's that's how I see it. The fundamental nature is the human element, and with all the uncertainties and chaos that that ensue from that, and the character war is a little bit a little bit more easily defined in a sense because it's things you can touch, and uh, but that changes constantly as as technology and and doctrine and all that those things change. Yeah, I, I, one of my favorite. Uh, uh, definitions of the nature of war came from Frank Hoffman, who's at NDU, a you know, colleague of ours. And uh, Frank also talks about the violent clash of political will, right? That that is unchanging, whether it's, you know, uh, uh, Rome versus Carthage or Russia versus Ukraine. You're talking about a, you know, a violent clash of political wills uh, that will play out. And, and you know, that, that's, that's enduring. You know, but the technology for that fight, um, big changes, right? And culture, the military culture, the national cultures involved, uh, the time, you know, the we- the types of weapons, that, that all changes over time. Uh, so your article centers really on the latter term, the character war and how quickly it's changing. What are some of those changes and, and why, you know, there have been other periods of history where the character of war has changed quickly. Um, why, uh, why is this particular period of change so maybe unsettling? I think it's, it's unsettling, uh, for many, for two reasons. One, one is, uh, we're, we're entering into this new era of great power competition that, uh, for the last 30 years, we've not had to worry about and, or, well, some of us have worried about it, uh, our societies writ large haven't been concerned with it and the threat wasn't imminent. Uh, so this is changing, you know, if you think back, the cold war ended in 1991 and many of the people on active duty today weren't alive then. And so all, you know, the active duty military, except for the very senior people uh, has, has grown up in a period where there, it was what, uh, some termed as I think uh, Crow- Charles Crowdhammer termed as unipolar moment. I may have the citation on that. And so we had a holiday in a way, uh, and we devoted and changed, re- you know, devoted our resources largely to internal issues, to economic issues, uh, and got involved in wars in Southwest Asia. But those were kind of fought on the cheap in a way. It wasn't societal level certainly wasn't they weren't existential wars um the the terrorism threat's very real and uh we 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 had to to deal with that but it's not quite the same as going up against the chinese or the russians or in the case of world war ii the japanese germans and italians so this is for for the current uh members of the military and the decision makers this is by and large terra incognita uh, we're not, we, we don't know, we, we, we and, and this leads, I should say, this leads into the second uh, part of the challenge, which is, uh, and I, I'm sure people will call me to task for saying this, but I believe as a society, we are 
historically illiterate and we don't know what exists outside our own experiences, our own empirical uh, background based on what we've done. And, and I think the, the sea services at the Navy in particular also is very weak on history. And so it doesn't have that foundation piece that, that broadens beyond broadens one's perspective beyond one's own experience. And therefore this is very, this is a discontinuity. It's very, it's very disconcerting. It's very uh, different. And um, I, by way of example, in, in the, where we've had a similar kind of uh, situation in the past, not exactly identical, but similar was the U.S. Navy coming out of the 19th century. So from the 1870s on, 1873 being when the Naval Institute was founded, um, the Navy found itself in a wholly different strategic situation with a, a rapid evolution of technology, but no experiences either within the U.S. or globally on how these new naval technologies would actually play out in war. And what they did, what the naval officer community did in that period was they said, okay, we don't have a clue what's, how this is all going to work out, what's important, what's not important. So we're going to turn to history as a way of saying, okay, what are the things we need to be conscious of as we think about involving or integrating this new technology and building the doctrine, building the organizations, training, educating, all that for war. And that was that worked really well because what they started uh, in the 1890s with, with uh, you know, Mahan's writings and with the War College in the 18, late 1880s, um, what they started is, is, was put in place the culture that allowed us to do so well in World War II. Uh, con contrast that with today where uh, it's, it's almost a, uh, it's almost turning our back on history. We're almost saying now there's so much change technologically, strategically, socially, that history is no longer relevant. It's exactly the opposite of what we did in the late 19th, early 20th century. So, um, so that, that to me is, is why I think this is so unsettling because fr frankly, we don't have a polar star. We, we've cut ourselves off from theory and history yet. Yeah, we, we still, we study Mahan and Clausewitz and Sunza in, in the war colleges, but it's, it's pretty superficial compared to what you have to do and what we, you know, officers were doing before World War II. So. I think we've cut ourselves off from that theory and, and therefore we don't have the polar star to navigate by. We don't have anything that can help us provide context other than the systems we're buying and the doctrine, the procedures, the pre-planned response, ROE that we have in place. And in an era like we've been through for the past 30 years, that's fine. It, 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 you know, you're doing marginal improvements on systems and on doctrine and so on and so forth. But in an era, in a time of fundamental and rapid change that we're coming into and we're now facing, that's not going to be adequate. And when you're when your uh, pure ad adversary, your pure adversary is really a peer, right? When, right. when your yeah. pure adversary may have better technology than you, may have more numbers than you, may have weapons that uh, outstick yours, uh, may have thought through some of the problems uh, before you've thought through them. 
it's it's not good enough to just think, oh, well, we can make some marginal tweaks uh, and, and we'll just get better uh, and get better fast enough. Um, so that leads to the, the next point that, that's in your article. Um, you know, you, uh, you say that the unchanging nature of the war involves the human element, right? Right. Um, that doesn't change, but the side that will win is the side with humans and organizations and processes that can change and adapt more quickly than the protagonist, than the other guy, right? Um, and so it's interesting that, you know, the human element is always, a, it's a constant part of the nature of war, but also in the character of war, the human element has got to be able to adapt quickly. And that's, you know, th that was, you know, sticking in my head as, uh, as I read your article and edited your article and worked with you on it, it was like, well, that's a really, um, that's an interesting point. You kind of can go back and forth on the importance of the human aspect of war in, in, in kind of several different, um, you know, ways, you know, in this, in this one article, I think you brought it out. So just discuss that a little bit about, uh, about that need to adapt, not just as an individual, but also as organizations and as processes in order to, you know, to keep up a step uh, on your adversary. Uh, uh, okay. That's uh, I'll, I'll tackle that. Um, first, firstly, what, what Clausewitz wrote about, and, and it's going to be hard to, to condense this into 30 seconds, but what, what he was, when he wrote things like electricity and magnetism were just, kind of coming to the fore in the science world. And so he used, he used an example of a, of a ball suspended on a, on a, a magnetic ball suspended on a rope between three different centers. And those centers were uh, uh, violence, uh, rational thought, and, and planning, basically. Um, or no, sorry, violence, rational thought, and the passion of engendered in, in by war. So those were the three in his way that the triumvirate of, uh, of what war, the fundamental nature of war was. His point in, in, that, in that model was that the fundamental nature of war stays the same, but the relative strengths of those poles and how they interact force that ball that's on the, pen, on the, on the rope to move in different places and, and, and you know, prescribe a different track throughout that triangle. And that's that's a subtlety that I think is very important, and it gets to to how you know the fundamental nature being a, a human the human element of war as a kind of a reduction, and, and like Frank Hoffman says, the clash of actively opposed political wills, and and frankly, if you're down on the on the ground or at the tip of the spear, it's actively opposed military wills as well, and uh, so that that introduces a pattern of change within the nature of war uh, in any given era. So that, that, that gets you the bridges from the bottom line human nature as an element, the, the fundamental nature of war, into the character of war, which is conditioned by all these different factors. So, so the answer, why... The, if the fundamental, so the, I think the answer you're asking is if the fundamental nature of war is unchanging, then why do we have to change? Why do the humans have to change, have to go about this differently? And the answer is because the fundamental nature of war is based on the human element 
But how that plays out in any given competition or conflict is unique. And, and for this reason, history can serve to, um, to shape and hone judgment, but it can't, it can't be taken into the, into the next battle with you. You have to, you have to take the battle, the war on its own merits. And, uh, and so that means that, especially after a very long period, I mean, the last time we actually fought a naval war was, you know, Okinawa in 1945. And so we've had just ridiculous amount of change in, in that, in those, that intervening almost a century now. And to think that, that just because we understand how our procedures work or how our platforms work or how our weapons work um, is going to be enough uh, kind of should make you make one pause. And so what, what we see in throughout history is that when that is particularly, particularly uh, in, in the post-industrial revolution era, so put Napoleonic wars in, in forward, what you see is that people planning and thinking have envisioned a, a future war in a certain certain way in that what's happened when that war starts it, it completely throws all those preconceived notions out uh, and so so that then suggests that you need to put a it puts a premium on the ability of individuals and, and organizations to adapt so that's that's one way that 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 bridges between a nature war and a character war the other thing is the the, the uncertainties, that are inherent in the fundamental nature of war because it's human beings who are put in incredibly stressful situations with perhaps insert with unclear guidance and perhaps are certainly uh, insufficient or incomplete knowledge. I mean, no matter, even if, even if the technology and the, all the conditions are exactly the same, just the fact that you've got the fog of battle and that uh, that pertains at the tactical, operational, strategic level. It's going to cause every every interaction to be different than the one before it. And so, that's I think a key a key factor. So so let me go back and, and try and summarize this. So the fundamental nature of war rests in in the human in human nature in the human element. That doesn't mean it's 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 fixed and unchanging. It means that it introduces like. Clausewitz wrote in, in the Marine Corps Doctrine FMFM1 warfighting uh, brilliantly uh, summarizes you know, that fundamental nature of war brings chaos, uncertainty, um, fear, exhaustion, mistakes, lack of knowledge, fog, uh, the friction of war. That all comes at that level. What the character of war does is, is offer you the tools to in, to pursue your strategic and operational aims, your mission. It offers you the tools for that, and it offers the context in which those tools are going to play out. So, for example, the character war in the technology world, well, we got nuclear weapons now. And um, the, the societal expectations, the political limitations say we, we just don't want to use those unless we're forced into it. Um, so that that combination of the, the the political, the social, and the technological puts constraints and restraints on military operations. 
So you go in with those, but you still have to realize and you still have to put front and center and increasingly in a peer competitor world that the enemy gets a vote and the enemy is going to be trying to undo whatever you're doing at the same time you're trying to do the same to them. So that's the interplay between the fundamental nature and the character um, as quickly as I could do it. Klaus Witz in about uh, three minutes. That was well done. <laughs> well done, Jerry. Um, so you, you mentioned quite a bit about technology and, and you know, there are lots of proceedings articles and other military journals uh, talking about hypersonics and cyber and AI and machine learning and unmanned systems and unmanned, uh, manned, unmanned teaming and how that's going to play out, electric weapons, high-powered microwaves and lasers, et cetera. You know, there's a lot of yeah. burgeoning technology that is uh, rapidly turning into, you know, weapons technology. Uh, your article, you, you, you mentioned all of that a little bit. You know, you talk about the, the need to be able to uh, apply past lessons to how um, you, you can deal with the character of war today and tomorrow, the next you know, 10 years in this new era of great power competition. But you also specifically mentioned uh, social media. So um, what, what were your points about uh, social media and why, why was that one maybe one of the more salient to you? Well, you're, you're asking the guy that still wrestles with his TV remote. Um, <laughs> uh, but I think I think certainly in uh, in Pereira, and I don't remember uh, why I I put that. I don't remember where that came from. But my guess is that looking at the war in Ukraine, where social media is playing uh, a, a pivotal role in terms of you know local citizens video, you know filming things, not video but filming, and and uploading it, and that contributes to. Um, to the intelligence that the Ukrainian military is is relying on, um, but I also think it, that it is a new dimension of great power conflict uh, that we haven't had to deal with before. Uh, since you know, when the Cold War ended, we really didn't have much of this, if any of it. And and what we see is so. Some people will say that social media uh, opens the doors to. Um, your own, your own people being influenced, not just by your government, your own government, by other governments and, and, you know, the whole disinformation and, and, uh, and you can see this playing out with how both the Russians and, and the Ukrainians are using media to tell the story they want told. Um, and so part of it is, is that you can get in and do things and, and mobilize or, or shift the direction of, of societies. And uh, so that's that's a concern on one end. On the other end, I think that as with everything else, um, the, the consumers of social media, the participants of it, are, are, will, will become increasingly sophisticated as they are subjected to uh, these uh, polemics from all sides. And uh, so you have that tension between Okay, who's going to believe what, when, and what does that do? And I mean, if you look back to the <clears throat> Spanish-American War, uh, William Randolph Hearst was accused of using yellow journalism to to get the American people behind the war. And uh, I see similar things going on now with social media, with one 
significant difference. It is instantaneous and it, it reaches um, be well beyond what, what Walter Lippmann coined as the attentive public. So Lippmann, Lippmann had, in his days in the, in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, had to deal with what he said was 5% of the public that actually paid attention to the newspapers um, or 10%. Now, now you see what's going on with social media. It's much more extensive, if not. I think the only people that aren't seriously engaged in social media are those older than me. And there, <laughs> there aren't many of those left. Um, and so, so I think, so that's, that I think is a fundamental difference. And I think what's going to, what, what that means is that whether you're political decision maker or you are a military commander, you're going to have to take account for this and not just, not just to defend against what others are saying, but to use it in a proactive way. And this gets back to uh, things we used to talk about 20 years ago, such as, um, you know, perception management and, and, and shaping the, the intellectual, the emotional battlefield. Um, and, and we're going to just have to get better at that because it, the doors open. Indeed it is. Um, so, Jerry, toward the end of your article, you write this, I'll quote, for the first time in nearly a century, the United States faces the possibility of fighting a war of necessity outnumbered against very capable adversaries and under the threat of nuclear weapons. This will require an approach that is starkly different from the technology-centric style to which our military has become accustomed, end quote. Uh, so what changes do you recommend? What are, what are things that, you know, um, that you think need to be done either in our war colleges at the senior commander level in the culture of the military? Um, you know, how do we go about this differently? How do we have to adapt now to this uh, great power competition? Well, that's, a, <laughs> how, oh, no, that's how, a, many, how many hours do we have? Yeah, that's $64,000 question. Yeah. Um, so I think, I've thought about this a lot and you and I've talked about it uh, on occasion. Um, it, it seems to me that what is needed, well, first of all, we have to accept a couple things. <clears throat> we have to accept that, like you mentioned earlier, we have to accept that competition and conflict with a peer competitor uh, places fundamentally different demands on the individual and the organization. Um, so I think uh, uh, and, and so that's, that's, that's part one. Um, I, th I think we need to relook our, our education system and our training system. Um, and I've been doing some work on this in, in over the past, uh, five, seven years. Uh, there's, there's, there's approaches to training and education that are out there and digitizing wargaming and, and allowing self-paced training, play to learn was a term uh, a couple of years ago um, that allows us to get, and, and I'm speaking mainly from the Navy here because that's my, that's my background, uh, but it, it allows us to, to get to a higher training level and education level faster, mostly training level, faster and that's necessary because essentially what we've done is we've we've made our training system into you know the certification for deployment kind of 
training structure has has become a ceiling instead of a floor. So the, the certification now is for a deployment. Then you, because your missions are limited on deployment, your tra actual com composite training level tends to to fall off once you deploy. What we need to do is make that a floor. And so we that we need to get up to that certification level so we can get to the mastery level. And we need to do it in less time. The technology's out there. Uh, the challenges is, is bureaucratic inertia and, and organizational conservatism, if you will. Uh, so that uh, and so that's the training side. The education side is, I think, I think, uh, and I've talked with some people about this um, who are much more in the know on war colleges than I, I am. But I think we our war colleges have become, uh, in in the interest of of JPME. And, and, and getting that check in the block have become too much focused on kind of the everybody becomes a chairman, everybody becomes a CNO, and too little on, on, on war and on understanding war. Uh, we've got so many requirements are, are piled into a war college course that the stuff, the old stuff, like you know, Mahan and Clausewitz and, and, and the other theorists in history get shunted out. And I think we need to figure out a way to get those back in because, and, and okay, so so take take Mahan. <clears throat> um, many, many naval officers believe Mahan's a dead white guy uh, who wrote a really cool history about sailing ships in the, in the the uh, Napoleonic Wars, you know, what good is that to me today? Well, what, what Mahan also wrote about, as Nick Lambert points out, is the economic side of, of war. In fact, as Mahan matured from 1890 to 1907, his writings get more and more focused on the economy as the centerpiece of what sea power and naval warfare is all about. And this is not something most war college graduates ever come across. Um, in the end, so so that's part of it. So uh, you can't, in other words, you can't do Clausewitz, Sunza, and Mahan uh, in a couple of courses and, and really take away much unless you're Einstein level brilliant or Hawking level brilliant, which I know I'm not. Um, and so. Uh, so that's that's part. We need to somehow get more time devoted. And again, I believe that history and theory is integral to being able to deal with the uncertainty we're facing. So, um, by a case in point, John Samita, who's who's uh, wrote uh, numerous books, but one was on Clausewitz uh, Reconsider, and then uh, uh, a book on Mahan. I think it's something like uh, Inventing Grand Strategy and Command, or something like that. In both cases, what he what John was arguing was that Clausewitz and, and Mahan used theory and history, a, a history that built the theory to allow students to, to empathize with past wartime decisions and to understand all the factors and, and all the elements that go. In other words, theory that they developed is, was used to fill historical gaps because we can never really know everything that actually happened in a given battle or war. And then that in turn allowed students <clears throat> through a critical analysis to hone their judgment about what works and what doesn't work and how to proceed, how to go about 
thinking about fighting. And that, that message is not part of what the War College is, to my knowledge. I graduated in 94 from National War College, but that's not what the War Colleges are dealing, doing right now. And so you get, you get a very superficial look at, at, that, at that kind of stuff. And if you, if you take, what, if you take that, those comments and you think about what the Naval War College was doing in the interwar period, um, it was uh, up until uh, 1933, 34. It was one of the. It was a major element in the war planning uh, part of the Navy staff. And and what they did was they war gamed everything. And and in a in the course at the War College was about war. It was about how how are we going to. Here's the technology that's evolving. Here's here's how we might want to employ it. And every year they did a series of war games. And the, the, the students had to write papers, but it was the war games were focused on the operational and strategic level of war. And so OpNav at the time would say, okay, hey, we're coming up with this really cool thing called an aircraft carrier. And we think the planes are going to be able to go faster and, and, and go farther and so on and so forth. So let's game that. And then the war college would game it and they'd report back to the fleet and, and the fleet and the fleet problems every year. They would exercise that and say, back to OpNav, hey, we need some of this, this works, this doesn't work. It wasn't a perfect system, but you got this, and oh, by the way, this is Naval War College, 90% of the flag officers in 1940 had gone to the Naval War College course. So they all had gone through this process. It was a, it was a continuous cycle of learning, institutional, organizational learning as new technologies, new threats, new conditions were, were fitted in. And, and it, that War College course is uh, many have argued is why guys like Fletcher and Spruance uh, and Kincaid, who were surface warfare officers, what we would call today surface warfare, why they could operate carrier battle groups, because they'd gone through this course that helped them think it through. We don't have that today. We're focused on jointness and, and, and kind of how do we, how do, how does the joint fight fit? into grand strategy how do you how do you manipulate how do you not manipulate how do you operate within the political decision making environment of washington dc those those are important things but but we've we are neglecting the war fighting piece of this so maybe the answer is to do something like <clears throat> take the the jpme requirements we have now and do those like many officers are doing now by correspondence course and let the, the service war colleges go back to, to focusing on how their service exploits and fights within the domains that it operates in. Um, and yeah, that's, that's, that's a little bit of unjointness, but I think it brings the richness of the service perspectives and domains into the overall thinking. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good point. We, we've had a couple of articles about how uh, you know, education uh, particularly at the War Colleges, has gone perhaps overboard towards JPME, right, and and, and not enough towards NPME, you know, the, the, the naval warfighting aspect, and I think you're just, uh, you, you hit on that as well. Um, two things uh, while you were talking there, I, I was reminded of uh, one of the American Sea Power Project authors so far has been Trent Hone, whose amazing book, uh, Learning War, was published by the Naval Institute Press in 2016, I think. If you haven't read that for our listeners, if you haven't read Learning War by Trent Hone, it is a phenomenal book that tells that story, as Jerry was uh, synopsizing there quickly, of the 
of the U.S. Navy from the 1870s up to getting ready for you know World War World War II and even into the start of World War II. That learning process, that you know, the ideas that came out of either the War College or Washington, um, and then were war gamed and then were exercised at sea, and then a lot of that stuff was written about in proceedings. And then the next year's iterations of, of either the fleet problems and or the war games would feed into another series of articles and, and programmatic changes that uh, made the Navy better uh, constantly over time. So that's a terrific book. And, and Trent wrote the, uh, I think it was November last year, uh, American Sea Power Project uh, article. The second thing that you mentioned at the start, you were talking about how you've got to get uh, training up to the point where what, what is currently our ready to deploy level of training should be the floor of training. Right. And I re reminded of an article that was in the April issue by Admiral Howard, Wyman Howard, the head Navy SEAL, the Commander Naval Special Warfare Command. And uh, he wrote about how the, the Naval Special Warfare right now for 20 years post 9-11, they were deploying every uh, ready force that they had. So when a platoon or a team or a special boat unit, whatever was ready, as soon as they reached that, you know, training level, they deployed and they went to war. Um, and they, they didn't keep any of that wartime war ready, high readiness level special warfare forces back to experiment or back for a contingency force. And he said in the last year, they've changed that. And the uh, U.S. Special Operations Command down in Tampa, the four-star gave him the permission to retain about a third of his force that was ready for deployment, but not to deploy them, right? And so now they can do the advanced training. They can figure out what else they could do. You know, right. they can experiment. They can they can try new things, not with the force that is uh, that needs training, but with the force that's already gone through and, and certified itself as, you know, C1 and ready to go. And now, hey, instead of going uh, forward, you're going to stay back and we're going to put you through an advanced exercise. We're going to try some new things with that C1 level force. I thought that was a really interesting uh, statement about the investment needed to, to reach that next level of warfighting capability is you can't just experiment with whoever you got ready or whoever's you know waiting around the port. You know, you, you got to experiment with the force that's that's already been trained to that floor. Right. Uh, which, which I think you know, you made that point at the start there very well. Yeah, I would, um, I could, I would add to that, Bill. Um, we we did this in World War II. The Navy did this, and and uh, I'm not, I don't know about the Army. The German Army did it as well. Um, we would send some of our best fighter, or not fighter, but our best pilots and best ship COs back to Konus or to Hawaii to work on training. We it wasn't like now it's kind of like okay who goes to the training commands well you know people that want to stay in the fleet concentration areas or you know the stars go into the pentagon to run programs that's how you that's how you make flag um that's a little oversimplified but what this what the seals have done apparently from what you're saying is they've said no we need to take some of our best and brightest and, and feed them back into the training program into the training system to drive to, to 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 drive that train level up, and I think that's 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 a return to what we were doing in World War II, and I think that's very healthy. Yeah, there was a I think it was a Naval History article 
um, we, we publish so many articles uh, all the time, it's hard to keep them all straight in my head, but there was an article that we published in the past year that talked about um, the difference between U.S. naval aviation and Japanese naval aviation, particularly the yeah. last maybe three years of the war, and that the the U.S. did exactly what you just said. We rotated some of those combat experienced naval aviators back to train the next group of pilots so that they were taking, you know, kind of top gun level, what we would think maybe now is top gun level expertise right. and, and training the next generation of pilots, whereas the Japanese kept their experienced aviators out on deployment and they kept losing them. And as a result, they couldn't cycle that experience back to train the next generation, uh, the next group of pilots. And so that was that had a, a marked difference on the quality of naval aviators in our fleet versus uh, the Imperial Japanese Navy uh, by the time you got to 1943, 44, 45. So yeah. it was a really interesting point. Hey, um, Jerry, we're, we're running a little out of time here, but I want to, you know, because uh, on everybody's mind right now is what's happening in Russia, Ukraine. Um, you know, you're a student of war. You've got um, a, a much bigger bookshelf than, than I do and, and have read a lot of stuff. Um, and, you know, the sinking of the Moskva is, you know, that's a naval aspect of this thing. But, you know, what are some of the, the more salient points that have, you know, stuck out for you in the you know, 10, 11 weeks now that we've been ongoing with this war? Uh, well, uh, shooting from the hip on this one, um, I think there are several things. Number one, individual leaders matter. Um, who to thunk uh, that Zelensky would have been able to to pull his country together like he did. So that's one. Second, um, what modern combat demands a, a type of, of participant, soldiers, sailors, Marines, airmen, Coast Guardsmen, um, who is, is not a robot that's programmed ahead of time. He, you need a, a strong NCO, Petty Officer, Chief Petty Officer Corps, uh, to be able to 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 adapt and to push on the front lines, you know, I think one reason that the Russians have lost so many generals is because and senior and colonels is that they were they had to be on the front line because the the, the soldiers weren't able to think and act on their own. Uh, we we take pride and have always taken pride in our ability. We we call it mission command, our ability to to think uh, on our own and to operate on our own, and I think. Um, that that quality is still there, although we need to reinforce it much more significantly than we have been. 30 years of, of uh, fighting against uh, not peer competitors has uh, tended to, and at the lower end of the spectrum of war, has tended to push uh, technological solutions and, and over, overreach or over, oversight uh, that is inimical to the ability to think and act independently in, in line with the mission. So that's, that's a, that's an area we need to focus on. Um, I think, uh, we, we see once again, the importance of logistics and, and not just, not just the logistics like we, we have in peacetime, uh, where we, we think, okay, cause we can keep a strike group operating at sea for extended periods of time that we got the logistics, uh, issue suitcase, and we're, we're nowhere near that. Uh, if we think about the peer competitor, and you see this in in the in Ukraine and in, in the inability of the Russians to get their logistics organized and flowing well. Um, 
there's much criticism in the West about how the Russians have kind of fallen down in this. But I submit that we have been operating in a, in a kind of a rarefied environment for 30 years, 20 years really in Southwest Asia um, that has given us a buy on logistics challenges. In fact, you could argue World War II in the Pacific, we got a buy on logistics as well. The, the Japanese uh, were not inclined to attack logistics lines. And as soon as our, our Central Pacific campaign started, really starting with the Solomons, the, the tempo that Nimitz imposed on the theater uh, kept the Japanese on, back on their heels and they couldn't, they couldn't, they couldn't be proactive. And a lot of the submarine forces that would have gone after our lines of communications were, were ended up being dedicated to resupplying their, their isolated garrisons. So, so there, there's that. Um, I think the other thing that, that comes out is the fact that what people think war is going to be like before it starts is fundamentally not fundamentally is very different from the way it actually plays out. And that being the case, it goes back to what I've been arguing for some time. It, it puts a premium on the ability of individuals in the organization to adapt. And um, if you if you don't have that inculcated in, in all the aspects of that 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 are, are, are necessary, um, including a, a, a firm understanding of what war really is, it's not it's not. Uh, the application of checklists. It's going against. It's going against the enemy's enemy commander's mind. And how do you beat that mind? How do you how do you get that mind to give a double take so that you can go kill him? And um, that that part is, I think, missing in in much of what we're doing because it's like it's like going. It's like a wrestler who doesn't have an opponent. We've been doing this for twenty some years, basically. At the high levels, you know, 05 and above, we, we've been going through the moves and you had to practice them without an opponent, but you don't know, you can't, there's positions you cannot get into in wrestling unless you have an opponent. It's the same thing with war, which is why Klaus was used the wrestler analogy. Um, and I would, I would add one thing um, in, in this context, and it, it's a little bit different than your question, but I, I think it's important to be pointed out you brought up Trent Hone's book learning more um, and it's interesting because what he lays out is here's how the US Navy prepared for World War II and then he says here's how it played out and many officers have read that book uh, I think Zeno Richardson made it uh, required reading for the flag community yeah he did <laughs> but the the takeaways are, are interesting because I've talked to several retired flag officers who read it and said yeah we went through all this stuff before World War II and we still messed up as much as we did in the first six months. I mean, it was, what good did it do? And my answer is that that the, the approaches that were taken before World War II did two things. One, we only screwed up as little as we did against a very capable opponent. The Japanese Navy and the Japanese Air Force were not no slouches. And all you have to do is ask the guys in, in the in the Asiatic fleet at the start of the war how they thought about the Japanese or the British in, in Malay or the Dutch and the Dutch East Indies. So <clears throat> so we we our preparation meant that we did as as poorly as we did only for a little bit. It was 
it wasn't decisive. Um, and the second thing that that preparation did was because it emphasized uh, a commander taking the tactical situation on its own terms and, and coming up with a plan as, as the situation was evolving based on that commander's uh, training, but also the education of, of looking at theory of naval warfare and the heuristics of shoot first, be aggressive, and use independent decision-making based on the mission. Those things were so ingrained in our officer corps that that, that allowed us to adapt. In some cases, it was successful. Others, it was not. Got that. Um, but what, what it really allowed us to do was come up with a, with a, a doctrine in early 1943 called PAC-10 that allowed us to do the plug-and-play that we ended up doing during the war. And my argument is you could not have, and, and Trent and his dad, Tom, have written about this, but you cannot get to that doctrine, to PAC-10, and it being effective without all that workup that was done from 1919, really earlier, up to 1941. So though, though that's a that's a another thing that we need to think about. You need to understand more fundamentally what war is when you're gonna when you're gonna profess to, to conduct it. And so great points. Great points. Well, uh, our guest this afternoon has been uh, Captain Jerry Roncolato, U.S. Navy retired. He is a surface warfare officer who commanded the USS Sullivan's. He commanded a destroyer squadron as well. Uh, and he's written for proceedings a number of times throughout his career. And, and Jerry, thank you for this article, but also thanks for your leadership uh, and, and drive and, and uh, all the help herding cats on the American Sea Power Project. Uh, it's, it's something I, I continue to be excited about and our readership does as well. So yeah, that's good. Uh, great to have you on the show. All right. Thanks for okay. having me on, Bill. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Proceedings Podcast. I want to thank our producer, Heather Legg. The show is brought to you by the members of the Naval Institute. Since 1873, our members have been the foundation of everything we do. To become a member, go to usni.org forward slash join. And we hope to see you at the annual meeting next week on 11 May. Until next episode, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.